Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we'll be beginning in a minute in verse 16. We live in a time of unparalleled religious freedom. And for that, we should be thankful. We live under the First Amendment that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And if you've ever been to the DMV to renew your license, you can be eminently thankful that the people that are involved in that process are also not involved in matters of eternity. used to think about eternity and think about how, if you could think about how long that is, and it's always longer than that, I think that may be the one thing that the DMV could help with is helping us to understand that it's longer as they're always taking up so much time. Anyway, um, we should rejoice in the reality that we have religious freedom, uh, part and parcel to a Baptist view of the faith is uh, a strong view of liberty of conscience. That is that we can't coerce belief in the life of any individual on any particular theological point that ultimately uh, the individual will give an account to God alone and so there should be no structure or hierarchy that, that coerces belief. Ultimately, we leave... Uh, that between the Spirit of God and the individual. A statement on liberty of conscience reads, God alone is the Lord of conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to His Word or not contained in it. Civil magistrates being ordained of God, subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath but also for conscience sake. And so we also see the reality that the civil magistrate plays a role in our good under the hand of God. And yet, it is our responsibility to worship in spirit and in truth in light of what the Spirit has done in our lives individually and collectively. Friends, what we hear of in some circles today is that we need to reconstruct the Old Testament system of law, and somehow through that, there will come redemption. But the fact is, if you read all throughout Scripture and all throughout redemptive history beyond Scripture, you'll find that God has been redeeming His people in spite of governments and not because of them. God has been doing His redemptive work in spite of who we are as people. And salvation doesn't come because we enact a system. Salvation comes from the hand of God alone. I love what William, I think it's William Rogers said, that God does not need the sword to accomplish what He intends in matters of conscience. The Spirit of God is alive and active and at work. Now, the sad reality is this. We've been given this great freedom of religion. And the question has to be, how have we wielded that freedom? Have we used it to bring glory to God? Have we used it in a way that in light of that freedom, 
God has been worshipped truly, or have we squandered uh, that gifting? And I would argue the latter, that we've squandered it in many ways. And, and, and we live in a day and age, and, and I'll move on quickly, but where we kind of pat ourselves on the back, a lot of people in our modern day pat ourselves on the back for uh, the idea of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is the state of being where every individual in a religiously diverse society has rights and freedoms and safety to worship or not according to their conscience. Now again, there's part of that that we can say yes and amen to. But there's part of it as Bible-believing Christians, if we are asked, is everyone worshiping according to their own conscience, worshiping truly in light of the Spirit? And the answer to that has to be no. There are many people who even call themselves Christians, and they are sincere in how they worship, but they're sincerely wrong in how they worship because they're not worshiping according to the truth of the Word of God. When it shakes out, religious pluralism, unveiled, turns out to be nothing more than idolatry in many forms. Us coming up with our own ways, our own means of worshiping God. And I I pray that by the end of today, you will agree with the Word of God that we are not free to worship according to our own innovation and own inventions, but that we are commanded by God and called by God graciously to worship in light of His Word. So with that in mind, would you stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, and we'll begin... In verse 16. Now we have to remember this is Jesus here and he's been traveling for some time. And he comes and he finds this well and he meets this nameless woman here. And we've learned that, uh, you know, he's he's leaned into her sin. Uh, He's confronted her there, but there's a greater confrontation, I think, that we find in these verses. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. These are God's words to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into Your presence this morning so thankful for Your Word. So thankful that on this December morning You confront us with Your truth lovingly and kindly, not for our destruction, but that we might be delivered from our own devices and worship You in spirit and in truth. May that be true now and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ellie Bear, would you do me a favor and go get a bottle of water and bring it to me? Huh? There are no bottles of water? All right. I mean, it's West Texas. I can buy it. Anyway.
All right. I, I think what we have to see in this conversation between Jesus... Thank you, Lucy. Um, between Jesus and this woman at the well is how this narrative would be, by most moderns, removed from the text. At least it would be uh, ignored in the exposition. Because Christ here um, is being so blatantly exclusive. He's saying the Jewish people are ultimately the ones that are worshiping in truth at this particular time. Now, we do see that there are those who have added to that truth, and that will be problematic, and Christ will confront them. But they are, in some sense, in their systematic worship, the ones who are rightly worshiping. And so here, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, the interesting thing about this is some would argue that the right translation is that she's not saying you are a prophet, but you are the prophet. Um, now, that's an arguable fact, but part of what we have to see at the background of this is that uh, this Samaritan woman would have been part of a religious system that only acknowledged the Pentateuch, the five books of the Old Testament that the Samaritan people valued as Scripture, and the rest of the prophets would have been rejected by these people. Uh, the, the prophets were rejected continually by them. But here, this woman is saying, I, I perceive that you are not only a prophet, I, would, I, I, I buy into the, the translation, you are the prophet, the one that is coming. So there's an acknowledgement uh, there. But I, I don't think that she understands the full weight of what that means. Again, all of that's arguable, but what we see is her bringing up this question, and she's bringing up this question in some sense, um, to point out here in verses uh, 20 and yeah, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, in our day, what would happen? Uh, there would convene an ecumenical council and everybody would put out you know, statements and they would say, well, no one's wrong, everyone's right, everybody's worshiping according to their own tradition and their own conscience, and so all is well. No one's an idolater, everybody can just worship according to his own conscience, and, and everybody is right. And Jesus doesn't respond that way. The foolishness in our day and in our leaders is at such a premium. Not because there's a lack of foolishness in our day, but because the masses demand so much foolishness from the leaders. So, so many people in leadership say and believe such ignorant things. Friends, if you've been paying attention, if, if you've been living outside of underneath the rock over the past several weeks since October, You've seen the kind of rhetoric that has come from so many leaders in, in, in America, in academic institutions. And, and just for reference sake, we should pray for our brothers and sisters who work in academia uh, because they are doing work that is necessary to raise up the next generation uh, in education. And they toil and labor alongside of some grandiose idiots. Um, You've heard so many of our leaders perpetrate this idea that Hamas is the victim of the Middle Eastern conflict. And that the Jewish people need to be condemned for defending 
themselves. And it doesn't take long listening to the rhetoric and, and those who are you know, decrying the, the suffering uh, that's happening there in the Middle East. And I think we should all lament the reality of war and what that means. But when cowards hide in hospitals and in educational facilities and a nation is trying to defend itself from terrorism, there are going to be civilian deaths. That's going to happen. It doesn't take long listening to all of the rhetoric against the, the Jewish nation to the newscast to realize who is behind the programming. And it's not the liberal DNC. Uh, when we turn on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC and we hear liberal professors or liberal politicians or liberal clergy, whoever they are, uh, affirming... Uh, somehow a terrorist organization, it's not ultimately the news networks that are responsible for pushing this agenda. Uh, friends, it's Satan himself. Because if you know the reality of the biblical narrative, you know that Satan has been about the business of destroying the Jewish people from the very beginning. And you know that he is... Uh, he understands that this little nation, and we'll get to a further flowering understanding of what this nation has been used for, is so uh, intimately interwoven with the living God, and he hates them. And so we have such foolishness and arrogance. It's so sad to see so many people buy into this uh, kind of rhetoric that, well, you know, again, Hamas is, is an innocent victim here. Jesus never shies away from confronting falsehoods. And he doesn't shy away uh, in this particular narrative of confronting the false belief, the falsehood that, that this woman is living in and believing. Look at verses 20 and 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus here speaks forcefully and clearly. He is not saying here that salvation flows from the Jewish people in the sense that they are the ones who grant salvation. Turn back to chapter 1 of John in verses 11 and then we'll look at verse 14. Verse 11 says, He came to His own, but His own people did not receive Him. Here is the one who has come to declare and provide redemption and the Jewish people are going to refuse Him. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of revelation and full of salvation. We're going to get to the reality that the truth that Jesus brings is the truth that we must worship in light of. And it's not, so, so then when Jesus, or when Jesus is saying that salvation is from the Jews, he's not saying that the Jewish people in and of themselves provide it. So, so the question has to be, why did he say this? Well, if we, un, if we understand why he said this, uh, we'll understand more fully what's going on here and the salvation that we enjoy today. Well, we need to understand that there's a conflict going on between the Jewish people 
ethnically, and this Samaritan people. If we were to turn back, and for time's sake, we're not going to, but read 2 Kings chapter 17, we would find the captivity of the northern king, kingdom and then the resettlement uh, by the Assyrian people of this northern uh, landmass. And, and so the Assyrians brought people from all over the place and settled them here amongst these Jewish people, the ones that were left behind. And, and what happens is that people started, these Jewish people started intermarrying, these Samaritans started intermarrying with those who had been resettled into this land. And eventually what happens in the narrative, I'm trying to paint this picture broadly, eventually the southern kingdom would be taken into captivity for 70 years, but they do not lose their identity. They don't intermarry. They come back. They reestablish the temple. There is a difference between the captivities here. And there is a resentment on behalf of the southern kingdom for these Samaritan people because in their minds they have, they have capitulated to this resettlement. Now again, you have to remember there's also theological things at play. The, the northern... Uh, these northern people, the, the, the Samaritans, it's arguable, but we believe that they would reject most of the Old Testament. They would hold to the Pentateuch, but they would reject the, the remainder. And there's another conflict about the building of the temple and the northern uh, Samaritan people being cut off from some of that work. I'm going to go into all of that in detail, but what ends up happening as a consequence to all of this conflict is that the Samaritan people say, okay, well, th- th- there's a temple over here in Jerusalem but we're just going to build our own temple here on this mountain in our land. Now, there's just one problem with the Samaritan people constructing a temple as a solution to the religious factions amongst these people groups. And the problem is that God didn't command them to do that. They were worshiping by their own invention and their own innovation. There was some old boy, some Samaritan, that at some point said, well, there's conflict here. There's a division of, uh, between what we believe the Word of God to be. There's uh, you know, ethnic differences, all of these things. I have an idea. I'll solve the problem. And we know how that goes. Not well at all. And so you have these two competing temples and religion. And we have to ask the question, was the, was the Samaritan temple legitimate? Was the Samaritan faith going to be accepted by God? This is what is ultimately being confronted here. It is interesting that most uh, come here and highlight the racial tensions. That that's what's at play here. And there are racial uh, problems in this text. But that's not the first and primary issue. The first and primary issue is an issue of right worship. Uh, Christ here is not primarily dealing with a race issue. He's primarily answering a question about whether or not man has the freedom to concoct his own system of worship. Whether or not sinful man can come up with a solution to the problem of worship apart from God being the one to institute those systems. And what, he, what Jesus pronounces here is that the Samaritan religion 
was man-made. It was infused with worldly ideology. It was, it was uh, open to all kinds of the thoughts of men in this day and the different systems that were brought from all different other kinds of religion. It was a pluralistic uh, view of the faith, and it was rejected. I think here's what is amazing and so counter to our day. We, we say that it's loving to be completely pluralistic in every area of faith. But what's interesting is that Jesus confronts this woman when she says, is it okay to worship here or do we have to go to Jerusalem? And Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews. Well, again, in our day, there would just be this, well, everybody's right. Nobody's Nobody's wrong as long as they sincerely believe. But instead of thinking that loving people takes on this permissive tone, Jesus loved this woman enough to confront her and not allow her to live and to believe any religious truth that was man-made or man-centered. He didn't find that acceptable, and so He confronts her and says, no, salvation comes from the Jews, not from man-made ideology. Synthetic man-made religion was not acceptable to Jesus in this day, and it is not acceptable to Him today. Salvation was of the Jews because it was the Jewish faith alone that was breathed out by God and instituted by Him. God is always, beloved, listen to me, God is always the one who saves. God is always the initiator of salvation and of right worship. Man can never concoct a system that will please God apart from God instituting it Himself. We wouldn't even know that that God requires sacrifice if He had not told us. So every word that He speaks to His Old Testament people... We need to pay attention to. We need to see that that ultimately these things were the means by which individuals could be restored into right relationship with the living God, not because of anything that they would do, but ultimately because He initiates the relationship. We see this in the nation of Israel as a whole. We see the reality. This, This group of people didn't just come about by putting a committee together. By, by man getting a, a religious ideology together. The, the, the nation of Israel is breathed out because of God's covenant love to them. Because God pursues them. So it was only by the sacrificial system that God had delivered through His prophets that anyone could be saved. It was only on the terms that God had laid out that worship could really happen. Only substitutionary atonement would do. In our day, even in Christian colleges, you'll hear professors, especially liberal professors, uh, kind of lament the Old Testament and say, well, this is a gory, bloody, awful mess. You're taking animals and you're slaughtering them. Uh, and and ultimately to atone for the sins of the people. And, And this is grotesque. And what's odd is that the liberal can see the grotesque reality of what the animals suffer, but they ignore altogether the grotesque nature of sin that brought us to the reality of those animals needing to be slaughtered. The grotesque reality before the face of God is not the blood of animals, it's the sins of men. 
And any time that an individual who is sinful says, I have an idea, I have a, a, a system of worship that God has not prescribed, this will fix our problems. We are furthering the problem and plight of man, not redeeming it. And we need to see that's what's happened here with the Samaritan people. They were worshiping sincerely, I believe, but they were sincerely wrong in what they were doing. And it's a warning for us today, too. Ultimately, the Old Testament teaches this glorious truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the blood of Christ for you and I today, this morning, beloved, there is no forgiveness. If Christ had not died on, in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice, you might as well cancel Christmas. There is no hope in the world apart from that reality. And it's instituted among the people of God over generations of time. Some people will come to passages like this and, and they'll say that ultimately that God is only starting to deal with the outside world other than the Jewish nation here. Well, I think that, that there is a particular reality to that's, that's coming uh, alive during these narratives. But friends, the reality is God said that He was making a name for Himself from the beginning. And He's... All throughout the Old Testament, there are narratives where we see that people must, one, worship according to what God has commanded, and two, that God is bringing in people from all over the world to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I'll share with you some examples, some biblical data, so that you don't think that I'm full of it. Well, you may still think that I am, but I want you to believe the Word of God. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, you'll remember that narrative about Nadab and Abihu and their um, strange fire, their, their innovation in worship. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid the incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Here is one of the priests of God, and his sons are consumed, and he doesn't shed a tear. He holds his peace. Why? Because he knew that his sons had added to the worship of God, and that in light of a holy God is a high-handed offense. Beloved, we cannot be innovators. We must be repentant people before the throne of grace. We must constantly search the Scripture and ask the question, how would God have us to worship? It doesn't matter if we have committees. Friends, and I would argue this, I'm a committed Baptist. But if I come to the conviction that Baptist churches have been wrong in a particular area of worship, and you can convince me from the Word of God that God desires something else, well then praise God, I'm going to move in the direction of the Word of God. Which in my opinion is what Baptists do. We live under the Word of God. We live under His commands, not under the popish nonsense that men generate in their own ideologies. 
So God has been radical that people will worship Him according to His standards and according to His commands, not according to religious pluralism and idolatry. But we also must see the reality that our God is a God who invites the foreigner in. And I'm going to give you three examples. One is an individual that you'll know well uh, from the pages of Scripture. Her name is Ruth. She was a Moabite woman. And she lived there in Moab and Naomi and her sons and her husband had come because of a famine in the land. And ultimately, um, Ruth marries one of these Jewish men. And when the sons die, Ruth doesn't just say, okay, I'm going back to my false gods. And if we're not careful about this narrative, we've already walked through this text. There's so much that can be said. I'm, I'm slowing down because there's so many thoughts running through my mind right now. Don't you love Ruth? In a great narrative. Somebody told me the other day that uh, every preacher's scared to preach books of the Bible. I don't know if you know that, but there's all, there, we're big chickens. There are books for every preacher that we're scared of. And for Alistair Begg, it was the book of Ruth. He was always intimidated by that work. Uh, I think one error that can come in interpreting Ruth is, is we hear the words between this daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, and it's so poetic and beautiful, and we, we forget that this isn't only about the earthly relationship between this, these, these two women, that ultimately there's a truth about worship in the heart of Ruth that has has come by the Spirit of God. Ruth chapter 1, you'll remember these words, Ruth saying to Naomi as she's going to return to Israel, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, now, we know from the narrative that Naomi felt as if God had dealt bitterly with her because she left and she comes back and her husband and her, her sons have died. But what she could not see was that God was bringing another daughter home. That, that when, when Ruth says here, your God will be my God. She's not primarily emphasizing Naomi above the Lord. She is declaring before all of redemptive history the reality that she is leaving her pagan worship to worship the one true living God. Through her relationship with, this, uh, with her husband, she had come to know that the God of Israel was the one true living God. And she laid down everything in her life to follow after Him. When Jesus comes and He finds His disciples and He says, come, follow Me, that's not the first time in Scripture that that's happened, beloved. It happens all throughout the Old Testament. It happens here with Ruth. He has providentially called her unto Himself. And we find even that Ruth is in the lineage of Christ. God is always doing more than what we can perceive in His providence. Secondly, uh, Naaman, he was the great General MacArthur of his day, a lot of power. Uh, he was a man who was feared. There were many conquests that he had been on. 
But in the providence of God, it was not only that he had amassed uh, uh, military victories, he had also contracted seemingly an incurable illness of leprosy. Something that would have made him, even in all of his military might, in all of his strength, a social outcast. Because these kind of communicable diseases meant that you were on the fringes, on the margins, no matter what your status was before you contracted the illness. But God in His mercy allows this little Jewish girl to be taken captive by Naaman and some of his men. And she's a slave in uh, Naaman's wife's home, if I remember correctly. And this little slave girl tells Naaman of Elisha and ultimately that this prophet could bring healing to him. And so Naaman goes to Elisha there's something that happens. Na- Naaman, this, 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 this man that had much notoriety and much political and military might, comes before this lowly prophet of this lowly nation, and he says, I need you to come heal me. Elisha doesn't even leave his home. But he sends a messenger to Naaman and says, you must go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. And Naaman, of course, says, well, that's fantastic. No, that's not what happens at all. Naaman is ticked. And, and what you didn't want in this particular time was for Naaman to be ticked at you. That was not good. But Elisha was a prophet of the Lord. He worked for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he was going to act according to God's Word and the, 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 the convictions of his own heart. And so, ultimately, we find here uh, that, that Naaman gets angry, and he's so incensed that you're telling me to go wash in this paltry little muddy river? I mean, I come from a great people. We have beautiful, crystal clear rivers. Uh, we have much more medicine and much more wealth, and you're telling me to go dunk in this trashy river? That's your solution? Well, one of his servants, we'll look here in 2 Kings, gets him to calm down and see reason. 2 Kings chapter 5, then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, excuse me, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 13, wrong place. But his servants came near him and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you, will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down, he capitulates, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, according to this prophet, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now I want you to see something in this text. The reality is Naaman has a bigger problem than leprosy. And Naaman's bigger problem is religious pluralism. It's idolatry. It's believing that he can worship the gods of his people, and that's acceptable and beneficial to him. And what he learns through this physical ailment is that his gods are impotent and that the God of the Israel people is the one true God who really can heal and restore. And so Naaman returns and he seeks to give a gift to Elijah here in 2 Kings chapter 5. We find these words, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth 
but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifices to any god but the Lord. Naaman repents of his idolatry and he turns to the living God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Think about this reality. This is amazing. This shouldn't lull you to sleep. This should make you go, our God is awesome in continually bringing people. I mean, Naaman is not the poster child for the Southern Baptist Convention and the kind of guy that you want to save. He's an absolute wretch. He's been in charge of all of these military conquests that have been brutal. And he's not going to make a light and fluffy commercial. And yet, our God pursues him by grace and crushes him in his pride, crushes him in his religious pluralism, and ultimately sends this powerful man back to his idolatrous nation. And I'm certain that he had to come home. And there were people there to welcome him as they often were, wondering about what he was bringing as spoils of war and what had happened in all of his military conquests. And here comes Naaman, carrying two bags of dirt. And can you imagine that? And we're expecting gold. We're expecting something worth something. And you brought two sacks of dirt and Naaman quietly and humbly unloads these things, takes them into the place where he would worship and spreads them out, knowing that it is the God of Israel that can truly save. Think about that reality. Naaman, in his arrogance, went out in the mode of conquest, thinking that he would conquer other people. And before he returned home, he realized that the God of the heavens can, that can conquer any human soul that he pleases. He can bring anyone to salvation. If you have a friend or a relative that you struggle and you just go, Lord, help them. They need the Gospel. Isn't there something sinful in our hearts that we, we disbelieve that God can, can ultimately... It's, it's almost... It, some people are, are so obnoxious to us that we think, boy, I just wonder if God can actually save that person. When our own salvation should prove to us that God can save anyone. Amen. Right? The, the reality is God can save whom He pleases. And, and what both Ruth and Naaman illustrate for us this morning is the great reality that God has been saving people from other tribes and tongues all throughout redemptive history. We also come to the illustration, the narrative of Esther. In her day, there was this dweebish little... By the way, this statue that's on the slide today, that's John Harvard. That's a picture that's taken at Harvard University. I don't know if you've heard any of the, 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 the um, eloquence of their current president, um, but she is sympathetic in some regards. Uh, coddles anti-Semitic language, uh, and I, I just think it's, it's appalling. I, anyway, uh, in Esther's day, there was this dweebish little idiot named Naaman. He probably 
in his anti-Semitism and hateful towards the pe- hatred towards the people of God, he probably would be the president of Harvard University today. And he rose to great power, this man Naaman, in all of his hate. And he, he particularly hated one man named Mordecai. And he devised with the king a plan whereby Haman would build scaffolds for the Jewish people to hang on. But instead, God used this adopted daughter of Mordecai named Esther to deliver his people. Haman himself ends up in the narrative, you'll remember, instead of Mordecai going to the gallows with his people, Haman ends up being hung from the gallows that he made. It's interesting that the Bible in Psalm 57, verse 6, the psalmist cries out, They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. So it has been throughout redemptive history that people have sought to destroy the nation of Israel, to destroy the people of God, and they wind up being annihilated themselves. Because God is ultimately on their side. And there are some in our day, some in Washington, some in these public liberal universities that I think ultimately should commit this truth to memory. That is foolish, ignorant, to think that we can be so apathetic to this nation and not suffer the consequences In Esther chapter 8, towards the closing of this narrative, and again, the glory of this narrative is that that the people of God have been spared, not because Esther was so... If you read Esther and you think, man, she was a great woman, you missed the point of Esther. Esther was not a great woman. She was a woman who served a great God. And and this, this, this reality that God had redeemed His people. And not only had He redeemed them, but He took the very instrument of their destruction and hung that individual out on display in front of the nation that if you mess with My people, you'll wind up hanging from the gallows yourself. In Esther chapter 8, you find these words, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's commandment, command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. And the question we have to ask in light of that is, was there anything more glorious than God having delivered His people through the actions of this beautiful woman Esther? And the answer is yes, there there actually is something more glorious than the fact that he had delivered his people and that he had vanquished their enemy, Haman. And it's found in the very last uh, sentence of verse 17 of Esther chapter 8. And it's this, and many people, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And I believe what what that means is they had come to understand in some sense uh, the Jewish God and the sacrificial system and the terms that God had delivered through His people, the right way to worship, and they engaged those Jewish people and became claimed Jewish identity by worshiping according to what God had commanded. And so here we see three examples, both in the life of Ruth, in the life of Naaman, the Syrian general, and in the life of the people of 
the day of Esther, that God is bringing people from the corners of the globe and redeeming them, making a name for Himself. He is keeping His Word to send His glory into all of the earth. And that particularly in John's Gospel. I think it's interesting. Satan was a liar against the people of God here. And he had, he had, again, you have to see in our day, Friends, don't disconnect yourself from your Bible thinking that somehow, well, there's all this spiritual stuff that happened to the Bible, but today we, we don't live that way. That's just not true. In Esther's day, Satan had the instrument of this knot-headed Haman. And, and you've got to think, Satan has to look like an idiot in, 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 on the eternal stage. Because the instrument whereby Satan was going to use this man to destroy God's people, God's, God ends up flipping the table and making a fool out of Satan. And so it is in our day that when people seek to destroy, I believe, this ethnic people, it's absolute absurdity. It's absolute foolishness. Gladness and the joy and the honor of Jews comes because their God is the one ruling and reigning providentially all throughout human history for their and our good. The Jews have always been, friends, a means of grace to the Gentiles. They have always been a precious people that God has used to make His name great among the earth. And we should not hate these people and we should not make them the sum total of what God is doing in the earth. There are some that I fear edge on the, the fringes of idolizing the nation of Israel. And the, 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 the sad reality is that in the church throughout history, if you, if you look at what the church has lived in and believed, she's lived in both eras. She's hated the Jews and she's idolized them. And both are errors. For all of what the Jews have been given did not point to there being a great nation in might or in virtue or in self-attained spiritual wisdom. What Jesus is not saying here is that the Jews are the reason that we are saved. He's saying the Jews are the means by which we receive our Savior. He is the one through who, the, the Jews are the one through whom the oracles of God come, the right system of worship, the worship that God had instituted himself. We have to see ultimately that all of the promises that are found here find their yes and amen in the one who meets this woman at the well. That this is the glory of Israel. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 20 and 22 for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter, utter our amen to the glory of God. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Beloved, here comes this. See this interaction between this Samaritan woman who is worshiping according to false religious ideology that is man-centered, and then here comes Jesus explaining that the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and, and the, the 
faith system of the Jews is what God had instituted, and she must worship accordingly in spirit and in truth. But what you have to see is the reality that Jesus is the fulfillment of that system. I think I've told you before, but it's a story that's just etched on my heart. I have a, a professor friend of mine, brother in Christ, who I love dearly, uh, uh, was educated in Edinburgh University um, in religion and was getting ready to go out as an Orthodox uh, rabbi in, in the Jewish faith. And so he went to the Philippines to fulfill a requirement of missions work that, that, uh, that was put upon him. And there he met of all things in God's providence. And I think about my friend, this, this man's name is James Adams. I think about him and I think about stories like Ruth and I think about Naaman and I think about people that went out not expecting that God would redeem them. God's always up to something. So this Jewish man, he goes to the Philippines and in God's providence, he meets one of those ornery, awful Baptist missionaries. And this Baptist missionary says to him, hey, we should study the Bible together. Now, James Adams was an Orthodox Jew. I mean, we're not talking about some liberal wing. In fact, he used to love to, he grew up in, I think it was France, wasn't it? And he loved, there's a statue of Karl Marx there close to where he lived. And he always, he always uh, loved to, to share that he would take his dog there as, as a child to defecate on Karl Marx's statue. So this was a conservative guy and, and, and very much in the, the Jewish realm of belief. And so as he's asked to study the Word of God with his Baptist preacher, he says, I can't. I can't touch your Bible. And Baptist missionary says, that's fine. We'll just study out of the Old Testament. We, can, we have common ground there. Let's just study your Bible. So they start studying through the Word of God and, and all of the, the sacrificial system. And, and eventually this Baptist missionary looks at this Orthodox Jewish rabbi and he says, why aren't your people still doing this? Why is it that you believe that this is the right prescriptive means to worship God, but you're not, and there's political and social stuff behind this too, I understand, but why is it that you're not honoring the Old Testament sacrificial system? And it incensed my friend. He was so angry. I don't know. I, I've studied the Bible all throughout my life, and I don't have a good answer for that. And so they kind of parted ways, and it, it just gnawed at James. And eventually, he came to this, this missionary's office one afternoon, right before the missionary was getting ready to go into a meeting, and he asks him, you have to tell me the answer to this question. And the, the, the missionary said, I'll tell you later. I've got a meeting to attend to. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll meet later. And he said, no, I, now. I haven't slept for two days. I want to know your answer. He said, I, I'll tell you, but I, well, I'll have to use my Bible. And James said, that's fine. And so, so Dr. Adams was taken after all of his life living in the Old Testament. He was taken by this Baptist missionary to the 29th verse of the first chapter of John where you find these words. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was in that moment that my friend came to believing faith, knowing that it is in Christ that all of the Old Testament sacrificial system finds its yes and amen. Isn't that a glorious truth? 
Isn't that wonderful that, that, that we're not waiting for the perfect sacrifice, for the perfect uh, uh, means of salvation, but that we have the fullness of all of the promises of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's confusing to me when people try to put a parenthetical after that. Everything finds its yes and amen in the triune God, specifically in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The creation was not made to display the glory of one single solitary ethnic group, but to show forth the creative and redemptive glory of the one triune God. The glory of... Friends, I want to say this as politely and kindly, and I'm not trying to dive in to a debate over hermeneutics here. I'm not. But the glory of Israel is not Israel. The glory of Israel is is Christ. And so then the question is going to be, well, what of the Jewish people today, Jay? Well, I think we need to square with one fact. I get asked questions around this all the time. And generally, people are trying to back me into a a corner theologically, which I'm encouraged. That's what happens to to our Lord all the time, too. Not conflating those two at all, but... I think there's one thing that will solve our problem in handling the nation of Israel that the church has oddly fumbled throughout the ages. And it's to square with this one biblical piece of data. Our Savior was a Jew. The fullness of all of the promises of God through His people are found in Christ a Jewish man. And so anybody who says that they follow Christ and then lives in anti-Semitism is at best playing the part of a fool. Because your Redeemer is Jewish. The one whom you will worship for all of eternity has as part of His identity that reality. The other thing I would say is this. The squad is going to continue to squabble. The, the, The foolish liberal presidents that applaud anti-Semitism, they're going to continue to, to publicly pronounce their stupidity before the world. And here's the encouragement for you. Don't let the Hamans of this world discourage you. Many have come, and most of them, if you'll read history well, have hung on different gallows of God's making. Hitler tried to wipe out the entire Jewish He found a final solution to exterminate these Jewish people. At the end of the war, only the charred remains of his body were left. I promise you, on the authority of God's Word and reading the providence of God, that God is still tending to His people. None has been able to destroy His people from the earth. And He will never give that ability To love Jesus, then, is to love the Jewish people. And when I say that, I want to be understood rightly. To love this people, not to idolize them. I think that it's appalling when Christians marginalize the Jewish nation. They don't have salvation apart from Christ, but they should have our loyalty and our humility knowing that God brought through their lineage 
our Redeemer. And so we should pray what the psalmist put forward in Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the people of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I pray that that is an impulse of our heart to love these people, not to idolize them. And and one of the ways I'm getting off of my notes, and that's dangerous, especially with this topic, but friends, we're prone too often to think that there's a political solution to what ails us. And we just are. We'll vote the right guy in, and hurrah, he'll save the day. Jesus will return, he'll save the day, mark it down. All of the politicians between this day and that day they're going to be failures. 100%. There's a, there's a way to stomach politics. It's just to go into it. I don't think it has to be necessarily uh, with a skeptical mind, but with a realistic one. These are men. The, the scariest 10 words in the English, English language are, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Jesus will ultimately redeem his people. We can think at times, too, that our loving another nation is primarily, and I think we should give military support to the nation of Israel, not dabbling against any of that. But the greatest thing that we can steward, what I think if the Apostle Paul were to stand on this stage today and proclaim the gospel to you and answer the question of how should we love our Jewish neighbor, I think his answer would be give them the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Live in the gospel. Be gospel-centered people. Call them to repentance in Christ because there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's only through Christ that we are redeemed. It is only through Christ that we are reconciled to God. It is not because of our bloodlines. Friends, there's a Reformed term that I here often, and and just so you're aware, we're not done with this narrative yet. I've got other sermons in here. Um, But there's a a term in Reformed-ish circles uh, that's used often uh, as it relates to worship, and that is we've got to love the means of grace. And what is being described there is the, the Lord's table and baptism and the proclamation of the word and singing and all of the things that got our congregation and coming together and and you'll hear from me uh, a yes and amen to that we should love the means of grace I just think we have to square with one fact this little Jewish nation has been a means of bringing you and I grace it is through the nation of Israel that we have received our Savior and so to be haughty in our thinking And to ignore them is to play, again, the part of the fool. As we consider Nadab and Abihu and their faulty worship, and as we think about this Samaritan woman and her bastardized religion, as we contemplate the grace of God who brought idolaters like Ruth and Naaman and those in Esther's day and you and I to salvation and to right worship of the one true living God, I think it would be wise that we might be Faithful to speak again to everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, the truth that we have come to learn in the face of our Savior. And it's found in His words in John. Turn to John chapter 14 with me real quick. 
If there's one thing that needs to be heralded, to both Jew and Gentile, it's this. John chapter 14, verse 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And we know that our Lord is about redeeming His people and that He will accomplish that task throughout all of the ages because what He has started he will bring to completion. And we've already heard the marvelous truth and the truth that we celebrate at this time of year in the incarnation and the Word, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of revelation and salvation. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Isn't it interesting, friends? And I'll close with this. And we'll pray and be dismissed. Is it not interesting that in our day and age, liberal, fallen men and women like to pat themselves on the back for being open-minded people, religiously pluralistic, welcoming everybody no matter what they believe, they're there, we can all sing kumbaya and it'll all be okay. And, and, and those kinds of people think of themselves as, as being the loving type who, who are really doing the good work of drawing humanity together. But what we find in our Bible is that anything that man tries to do, God just does it perfectly. And that is, God's not bringing everyone together and letting them hold on to their idols. But God is drawing people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And instead of letting them set in their foolishness and the darkness of their unbelief, He sets them free from the bondage of sin and idolatry. And He doesn't accept them in their worship. He makes their worship acceptable by pushing against all of their idols. And beloved, I think that's what we find here in John chapter 4. As Jesus says, you worship what you don't know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Redemption, beloved, always comes by grace. It always, always, always. There's no, there's no parenthetical here. It always comes by grace. God is always the initiator. And God accomplishes every ounce of redemption in every life that He intends. So let us be a people who honors the means that He has used to bring about that salvation. And let us be a people who are not slack in proclaiming the glories of the Gospel to every tribe and tongue. We're going to pray now. Instead, we were going to sing. But I'm going to pray and dismiss us. Libby, and, and I want you all, I'm so thankful for our church family. I'm so thankful for the way that when we come to difficult spots, we love one another and we lead through. And most of you are probably unaware, but this morning as, as um, Tanya and Libby are singing and leading us in worship, uh, their dad is in the ICU and in all likelihood will be removed from life support while we're speaking and pass into glory. Um, and so they've left a little bit early, so I could lead us in a final verse, but you will feel less if I do that. 
So let's pray for them. Uh, give thanks for their giftedness and their sharing those gifts. And uh, let's pray that we would be faithful with the gospel this week. Father God, we come before you so thankful for the means of grace. We're so thankful to come into this place and sing praises to you. We're so thankful for the musicians that normally gather with us, but I'm so thankful for the voices that sing when we have no musicians. So thankful for the Kendrick family and for Tanya. And Father, we know that this is a difficult hour for them and for their mom, Mary. And so we just pray, Father, for the entire family for grace as they go through these moments. We're thankful to know that David is a believer and that all of the promises that you have given him in your word, he will find their fullness in just moments. So Father, we pray that the family would rest in those promises and in your goodness and find you to be sufficient even in the midst of their loss. Father, I pray that you would grow us as individual Christians and as a body to be stronger in your word, that we would be sharpened by the meaning of the text and that we would worship you not according to our own man-made convictions and systems, but that we would worship according to your word, in spirit and in truth, and that we would glorify you for all that you've done. Father, we come this morning thankful for the narratives that you've left us of Ruth and Naaman and, and Esther and even Nadab and Abihu, that we know that you are a God who requires us to worship, to come to you through blood sacrifice. And Father, more than anything this morning, we're thankful that not only have you prescribed that, but you've provided it eternally in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And that perfect blood has been shed on all of our account. As we leave this place today, we, might we look up even as we leave the front doors and see the, the red stained glass that is meant to remind us of the, that precious blood. And might we, we be reminded that as we go out today, the, the only reason that we can have confidence in the ministry that You've called us to is because You have washed us in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you strengthen us, help us to speak truth winsomely, effectively, and clearly. Father, might you receive the glory from our lives as we seek to worship you not only in song, not only in prayer, but in every area of our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go in peace, beloved.